Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The term mastermind was originally written in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Before that, the earliest documentation that we have of a mastermind group was Ben Franklin's group that he used to meet every single week in a tavern that he called Huntus. Nation, there's no doubt about it. Life is too short to do it alone, and it's not very much fun to do it alone in. Nation, I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com and find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. I'd love to have a 15-minute call with you to explain all things Rising Tide Mastermind and see if this is a group that's right for you and you are right for the group. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Nation, it seemed like just yesterday we were welcoming in the new year and now we have almost gone an entire month. Yes, it's the end of January. How the heck did that happen? Time flies. There is just so much that we want to do. And if you're in the South, you say, well, I'll get around to it. And I think I told this on the podcast, somebody actually made me a little wooden chip that said it was a round, it was called a to it and it was round. So it was a round to it. I'm sure that's funny to somebody out there listening. Anyway, somebody actually gave this to me and I had it somewhere. I think I gave it away, but that used to remind me that there is no getting around to it. To use philosophy from the great Yoda, there is no try, there is only do or do not. And the year will get out from under us if we do not plan to do what we want to do. Now, let's talk about planning. Planning comes very easily for me because I am a red. And for those of you that don't know what I am talking about, we are talking about I said this, you heard that. We have had the great Kathleen Edelman on the show three times. Most recently, Kathleen was on the Scaling Up H2O podcast on episode 281. So feel free to go back and listen to that. And of course, reference the times that she was on before in that show. But she explains what the four different temperaments are, and my temperament is very easily set up for tasks, but not everybody is. That's okay. What do we want to do? And if we're not task-oriented, who do we want to do it for? And that's a different way of looking at that. Feel free to go back and listen to episode 281, and we talk a little bit more about that. But what I'm saying is we are one twelfth down of the year. So it's my hope that you have started in your plan. Hopefully you already had a plan and now you're working out what you want to do. If you do not have a plan, 
what I would love for you to do is start one. And a great way to do that is the 12-week year. And you've heard me talk about this on the show before. The 12-week year is all about planning and getting more done in a quarter than most people get done every year. And we have an affiliate link for the 12-week year, and you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash the number 12-week year, all one word. Again, that slash the number 12-week year, all one word, and you can get a copy of that book. As you've heard on this podcast before, I don't think there is a better planning book out there, but let's face it, there's a ton of planning books out there. I will say by far, this is the absolute best execution book out there. It tells you both how to plan and how to execute, and even better, what to do if you get off track. So again, scalinguph2o.com forward slash the number 12 week year, and that is available on Audible. And we're going to talk to our guest today, and Audible comes up. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that conversation after the interview. But I have changed my mind about how I read. I now read everything on Audible because of this conversation. And I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to leave you hanging on that comment for a slight moment while we do all of the other things we do in the introduction as well as the interview. But I promise I'm going to come back to it. As you know, one of the new things we are doing this year is we are doing Periodic Water Table with James. So here is today's installment. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Talil triazole. Now I know some people pronounce it tolytriazole, but there is a second L in there. I was taught to pronounce it Talil-Triazole. It's also often shortened to TTA or just TT. What is Talil-Triazole used for? What is its chemical formula? At what concentrations is Talil-Triazole effective? What is the impact of oxidizing biocides upon it? How does it react with metal surfaces? How does one test for Talil-Triazole? Are there challenges with blending a product with Talilotriazole in it? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learned to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. James, as always, thank you for getting us to think a little bit more each and every week. I hear so many people say they love all the weekly installments that James McDonald helps out with us. James, thank you for doing them. And thank you for all of the people that let us know that it helps you become a better industrial water treater. Speaking of industrial water treatment, speaking of the year getting away from you, and by the way, 
only 338 days remain in the year. So what are you going to do in those 338 days? Well, you might want to go to a conference so you can bolster your knowledge in your specific area of industrial water treatment. So perhaps you want to go to the Association of Metropolitan Water Agencies and then also the American Water Works Association. So they're combining forces in Knoxville, Tennessee for their technology conference, and that is taking place February 20th through 23rd. So this is all about membrane technology and exploring the latest developments in membrane technology. So if this is the type of water treatment that you practice, go to our events page and we'll have everything there for you. You might also want to check out the International Institute of Ammonia Refrigeration. So for all of you people that are in big industry where they are cooling using ammonia, that's going to be in Long Beach, California, March 12th through 15th. It is the largest exposition dedicated to the natural refrigeration industry. We'll have all of that information on our events page. And then you might also want to check out on March 28th through 31st in Sacramento, California, the American Water Works Association and the Water Environment Federation is having their utility management conference. So this is for professionals and managers to get together to talk about all things water. We'll have information about this on our events page. And this next one I'm going to talk about is one of my favorite things each and every year. It's favorite times two because we do it twice a year. I'm talking about the Association of Water Technologies Technical Training Seminars. You've got two opportunities for this. You have one that's going to be February 21st through 24th in San Diego, California. The next opportunity is going to be March 29th through April 1st in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Folks, this is where if you practice the same type of water treatment that I do, that you get so much information power packed within a week, you are just going to be supercharged with all the things that one, you're going to be refreshed on as far as your knowledge and two, all of the learning opportunities that you're going to get from this. You are not going to go to this technical training seminar and say, I've heard all this, I know all of this. You are going to come back with things that you are reinforcing and things that you need to brush up on, as well as things that you've never heard of before. It is a fantastic opportunity. It's one that I am so humbled to be a part of, and I would love to see you there. More information about that, go to our events page, and we will take you right to the site so you have everything that you need. And as I mentioned before, our great staff on our events page, they have made it so you simply click and it takes you to where you need to go. You can even click and it puts a calendar invite right into your calendar. So easy. Thank you to the great staff at Scaling Up H2O. But I'm not done yet. We still have some other things to talk about. So also the 2023 Sustainable Water Management Conference is taking place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
April 16th through 19th, this is where solutions for balancing the benefits of conservation and the cost of managing water resources, sustainable utilities, infrastructure, urban planning, and all things the like are discussed. As you know, I'm going to say more information about this on our events page. And then the last one that I have is the 2023 Water Quality Association's Convention and Exposition. That's going to be April 18th through 20th in Las Vegas. The WQA has this convention and expo every year, and it is one of the most comprehensive gathering of water treatment professionals in so many industries. This is one that you definitely want to go to if you have never been before. It's very interesting how they do their papers. They are very strict on how they do their papers, and it's a different format, especially if you've gone to the Association of Water Technologies. But all that information, everything that I mentioned today, and more for the entire year, go to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our events page, and all of that is going to be there. And all of this, because I am asking you, what are you going to do with the balance of the year? What are you going to do with the remaining 338 days? How are you going to enhance what you already know about your craft. Well, folks, I am so excited to get to this interview. I know you are going to love it as much as I enjoyed giving the interview. So here it is. My lab partner today is Scott Wozniak of Swaz Consulting. Scott, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Trace, awesome to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Of course, you and I share a good friend together, Tim Fulton. I'm curious, how'd you meet Tim? You know, I think, honestly, one of my clients introduced me to him. So I work with a bunch of different businesses, and we happen to be in the same uh, Atlanta metro area. So yeah, I, I think it was a mutual client. It's like, hey, you need to talk to this guy. And we ended up hanging out and being part of his small business events and doing some cool stuff. So great guy. Yeah, Tim's one of those guys that if I learn 10% of what he's forgotten about business, <laughs> I will be happy. Yes, totally get that. I think that's one of the keys to just life and growth, man. Keep exposing yourself to people who've played at the next level. In fact, one of my buddies says it well. He's like, hey, I want to spend about a third of my time with peers, about a third of my time with maybe I'm pouring into people. But then I want to spend about a third of my time with people who are doing what I'm dreaming of, but they're at 10x size or quality or time or however you want to measure that. But they're not just a little, like they're they're the whole order of magnitude up. And um, yeah, I, I could say Tim could be one of those dudes, right? Like just hang around people like that. And uh, what do you know? Things will rub off. You'll pick up their random comments or like, whoa, 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 what did you just say? Like hang on, that's big. So yeah, it's it's a really fun deal. Tim gave me a phrase that has just changed how I look at everything. It was mm. maybe about 15 or 20 years ago. He said, Trace, how do you know what you don't know? And I have just Ooh. grabbed onto that. And, and exactly what you just said, 
what rooms can I put myself in where I'm going to learn something? I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Scott, tell us a little bit about Swaz Consulting. Sure. So we're a consulting firm. We work, I was going to say all over the country, but really around the world. We won three continents this past year, um, mostly U.S. And we work with companies that are looking to grow or in the middle of growing and trying to figure out how to do that. I mean, this is kind of our, our jam is fast growth. And some of this is I have had a passion for studying the best in the world. Um, just really inspired this whole 10x idea, right? I mean, some of them are 100x where I'm at. But I would also say some of that is because my, my growth as an individual leader and strategy guy and all that was in fast growth companies. And so I did a couple of smaller ones. And then I spent about a decade as a leader at the Chick-fil-A corporate headquarters. Um, and so most people don't know this because uh, they're probably not shocked, but Chick-fil-A is not public, right? So they don't have to put all their stuff out like, like say their competitors, McDonald's do. But Chick-fil-A has had at least 15% growth every year for 35 years. And they are on track for this year to be year number 36. I mean, some years it's 17, 18, 19%, but at least 15% year after year after year. And if you do the math, I mean, every five or six years, they double. Um, it's it's just a constant growth world. So, so, okay, that background, meaning like when you're in growth mode, it's a whole different thing. You can't just maintain, right? You can't just do what we used to do and it all works. You're constantly rethinking. And so how do you build it? We call it an engine of excellence. How do you build an engine that wows your customers and engages your team? And what's that growth engine look like? And it's not just how do I get more customers? I mean, that that is super important part of the engine, but I mean, if that's all you do, and if you don't upgrade the company along with it, um, I mean, I'll give you one of the lessons we've learned. Uh, about any time you triple a part of your business in size, the systems break. Um, volume of customers, uh, revenue, locations, product lines. I mean, pick a category. About any time that gets to three times bigger than it used to be, somewhere right around that mark, it's not working, right? Like it's inefficient and breaking down. Messages are being lost. Balls are being dropped. It's the costs are scale. Like what's going on? And people are often like, well, are we doing something wrong? Like, no, no, you designed systems at this level and now you're at a whole other level. You got to upgrade your system. So, so this is what we do. We, we teach on this. Um, we do strategy assessments where we'll get to know companies, go inside and kind of help them. Oh, here's where you're at. Here's the systems you need to upgrade. And then once in a while, people say, hey, will you just run with us for a couple of years and help us actually implement all this? So so we're um, we're a boutique firm that that kind of rolls up our sleeves, goes inside companies, and and gets a lot of cool stuff done. Oh, and we have an online program and books and some of that stuff for people who just want to just kind of get the concepts. Well, we're going to talk about some of your books later. Sure, sure, I hear number four is in the works. Yes, yes, that's that's been a journey, learning a lot. Well, let's talk about what you just mentioned because most companies out there think growth, okay, let's just sell more. What's mm. the issue with just thinking about sales? Well, listen, if you just want cash in the next 90 days, sales is the only thing you need to care about. But if you want a brand that we talk about building legendary brands, right? Even if you don't want to be legendary, if you just want to be solid in your category, then the first fundamental you got to build is trust. 
I mean, if they don't trust you, it doesn't matter how good your marketing and sales engine will be. Word will get around. And so, hey, fair warning, I'm going to pick on McDonald's a little bit here. Um, I, I actually really like McDonald's. I grew up on it. It was like, we didn't have a lot of money. McDonald's was a special treat. And uh, like a Big Mac still tastes like childhood happiness to me. However, it's an interesting comparison to Chick-fil-A because they have world-class marketing and advertising. I mean, they're constantly driving attention and awareness and the, I mean, da-da-da-da-da, right? Like the people finish that in their head, right? It, whether you like the food or not, they've got the sales engine going. The problem is enough of us had a bad experience at McDonald's now that we don't trust them anymore. They're famously, um, their ice cream machines, or actually maybe should I say infamously broken, right? Like, In fact, if you, your listeners want something fun to do, I'd recommend checking out www.mcbroken.com. There is an actual website, not by McDonald's. They hate this. <laughs> One of these, their customers happened to be a software developer who's so mad that he kept showing up for broken ice cream machines that it's a real-time map of the US. He uses the Google map system and they can zoom into your city, zoom out, and it will show you with pins on a map how many of the McDonald's ice cream machines are broken. And it's this whole like bad press, bad rigmarole. Well, here's the crazy thing. I go on that app, I look, and the last time I looked, it was 12%. Now, McDonald's hates this app for multiple reasons, right? Partly bad branding, duh. But, the, but I've heard them like complain, guys, look, look at the numbers. We're up 88% of the time. And, and you guys say we're famously broken. Like, well, here it is. It's just enough that we don't trust it. And that's, if you don't have trust, then, then you can tell me how cool your ice cream is all day long. And I'll be like, yeah, but it'll probably be broken when I get there. This is what happens to brands. I see they sell, they sell, outsell their operational capacity to deliver with excellence. So then a whole bunch of people come, have a bad experience and they start losing trust. I'm, Trace, let me tell you, this is actually my, this is not what, what you're probably looking for, but this is the Scott Wozniak strategy on how to run your brand into the ground and ruin your reputation forever, right? Like, here we go. I would actually want you to have world-class marketing and sales and bad operations. Okay. You got, you got to explore that a little bit more. Well, because well, I'd want you, what you do is say, listen, I need as many people as possible to come find out that we're bad at our job. Like these guys aren't good. And then word will get around and, and you'll make cash for a year tops. And by the end of that first year, everybody will know these guys can't deliver on the stuff they say, don't believe their promises. It's all bunk. And then your trust is gone. Your brand is gone and nobody will buy from you. So now listen, if I want you to be great, it's not the opposite. I don't want you to have bad marketing and great operations. I want you to have great both. But but again, it's the long-term versus the short-term perspective. Um, at the end of the day, the, the customer experience is by far the most critical thing you can deliver. And the first part of that experience is the sales part, the, the marketing, the, the get them in the door, get them excited, get, get them hyped up enough to give you their money. But if it's all downhill from there, then, then man, the customer experience goes south. And by the way, and if you want to flip it, like what's the biggest growth engine you can come up with? Chick-fil-A is key. A lot of these other companies we work with, it's word of mouth, man. It's having raving fans who tell others to buy from you. I, nothing grows a business faster than that. You know, it's exponential. Everyone talks about exponential growth and all the exponential engines. Like this is literally exponential. If your customers bring you customers who bring you customers, like that just stacks on itself. So it's a slower build sometimes. 
because I might have to deliberately restrain some of my sales opportunities and say, if I can't do it brilliantly, yeah, it, I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not, not forever, but not now, right? I might delay that a little bit and say, hey, can we come back? Not this time. We'll reach out next year. Um, I hate that. I, <laughs> I'm an optimist who's always like, oh, we'll figure it out. It'll ha- we'll make it work, right? And I'm always pushing that boundary. But man, I have pushed it too far more than a couple times in my life and come back to regret it. If you can't do it with excellence, don't sell it. Now, I will sometimes say, hey, we just started. I, it's, we're going to require stretch. We're going to lean like, right? I, I've, I've got a prototype and I've never done it at this scale before. Like, oh yeah, I've done that. And I've done, I'll do that again probably. But it's a totally different. I was talking to one of my, my team this morning about it, telling them a story. New member of the team, catching them up on a few of the values. And, and one of the things we talked about is like, we deliver on our promises, even when they cost us. Um, and so... So I'm not a software company, but several years back, one of my clients, um, we were doing this strategy and they're like, we really need a tool to help us with this and like a custom tool. Well, I know a bunch of software guys, um, some of my great friends and all this stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, then I could, I could totally make that happen for you. And then I got to confess, I was like, man, I've got this whole relationship. I mean, this is a global corporation, right? They're fortune 200 and all this fun stuff. So cool. Um, And I, I was like, you know, I, we can do that for you. And what I did was like, I'll pitch the project. Then I'll, once I get that signed, I'll go to my software buddies and I'll outsource it to them. And I'll take a little money for being the guy who set the deal up and this will be great. Well, here's the problem, man. 25 years ago, I did a little bit of software development. I mean, yeah, basic Pascal, like nobody uses those languages anymore. But so I, I'm like, I think I get how this works. I think we'll set it up. And I price the deal, sell the deal, hire a guy. He gets into the project and my software guy goes, yeah, it's, this isn't, this isn't doable on the budget. You said, man, like, in fact, let's get into it. And in order for me to pull it off, it's going to cost X, Y, and Z. And he, I, he explained enough and I, I trust him and I know enough of software. He was not making it up. Like I messed up the contracting process. So here's this client that signs me up and we're working on this cool deal for them and the bonus feature I can, and it's like, what do you do? And I was like, all right. So that's why I told my team member this morning. Well, it was going to be $20,000 loss for me. Like it was cost me $20,000 more to deliver than they were going to pay me. And I was like, we do what we say. We, they need to know they can trust us because if they can't trust us, nothing else is going to count. Uh, I mean, I can spin the story and I can do all that, but I, I'm, I mean, dang it. I said it. So we did it. We paid, they don't know. They, I'm not naming them because uh, we're still with them. Five years later, they're still doing stuff with us. I probably could have saved myself $20,000. I was out over my skis trying stuff that I really was not equipped to do. Learned that lesson. We don't do software development anymore. But it's not honestly because I couldn't sell software stuff. I've got a lot of my clients. I get in there. We're helping them build. And the solution is software. One of the tools they might need is software. And I, I have been tempted many times to be like, we can build that for you. And nowadays I'm like, you know, I don't currently have the team or the time to stand up a team and to run all that. Like you're going to need to find somebody else to take care of that for you. Wish I could help. I can make some introductions because even if I could make the sale, it could sour the whole relationship if I can't deliver on the sale. The point is not short-term sales. At least that's not my goal. The point is a long-term brand the more it grows, the more success it gets and the, the more reputation and respect it gets, which creates more growth, which 
I'm trying to play this long-term engine, not like how much cash can I grab in the next 90 days? You know, that's a huge lesson because so many people out there, they want to help the customer. The customer says, I know you don't do this, but can you help me with X? And because we want to help the customer, we spend so much time doing something that's not in our core focus and we end up losing traction. How do we stop doing that? How did you learn that lesson? Oh, I am still learning this because listen, this I, I can relate. This is the, the very thing that makes us entrepreneurial and leadership is this, this optimism and this stepping into the unknown and figuring out that's, I don't want to kill that, right? That's how we got here. But yeah, it needs to be harnessed and directed. So, so I've got a couple of different mechanisms to try to keep me on track. So the first, honestly, is I have a team of people who are not just allowed to, but like assigned to check in with me and challenge me. And before I sign new contracts or pitch things, like there's one guy on my team, my right hand, right? my co-leader, and he's Part of why I selected him to be my, my VP of ops and run all this stuff is that he is more naturally cautious and precise on how he moves forward. I'm the crazy, let's go nuts, we'll figure it out. And between the two of us, then the balance is there. So so like even though I'm, I'm the CEO and own the company, we don't sign contracts unless he signs off on it. So I'm like, hey, here's what I think I'm going to do to these guys. Make sure this isn't too crazy. 90% of the time, 95% of the time. He's like, sounds great, sounds great, sounds great. And he sends all the contracts out. I said, here's what I want to do. I just negotiated this and he'll send it out. But 5% of the time he will come back and he'll be like, Scott, that that's not in our wheelhouse. We don't have the team for that. The timeline, or, or the, maybe it's just the timeline. Like we can't move that fast. I mean, I know they want to get started next month, but that's two weeks from now. And given all the other teams that we have, we can't pull the people you want off their projects in two weeks. Like, you're going to need to go back to them and talk about that. And that that balance, like having somebody authorized to balance me, that's been really important. Once a month, I have a reminder pop up in my to-do system. It's kind of a recurring thing that pops up. And it's just this question. Am I getting too distracted with shiny objects? Am I overcommitted? I get love that I chase the cool things. but I And then I have a little list of here are the four things that are the big deals for me this year. Uh, what am I doing that's getting in the way of these four things? And so I go back and and I literally have a goal to say no a minimum amount of time this year. I am working so hard to try not to overcommit, which which means I'm only mildly overcommitting right now. Like <laughs> this is not easy for me. That's great. I love that you're asking the question and you've set up the question to automatically ask you to ask the question. That's That's brilliant. Thank you. Well, I need all the help I can get. And you know, part of what we do is the coaching, right? As, a, as an executive leadership coach guy, I do this a lot, the power of a great question. But even though I am a coach, maybe another mechanism, I have a coach myself. I, gotta, I, I know all the questions, but having somebody sit with me once a month and walk me through what are you doing? How are you staying on? What's really behind that? Why is this? What would success look like? I mean, they, he asked me all the questions. I, I could ask myself the same questions. But there's something in the human mechanism of one of us talking to the other and like like this, right? Like what comes out of a conversation is somehow more and better than, than what happens even when I'm sitting alone. And so, yeah, I do the once a month self-diagnosis and I scribble my answers down and see what I'm thinking. But I still think there's value in humans talking to other humans and figuring things out. So, yeah, 
we half joke that it takes three to four people to kind of rein in all the chaos that I create and uh, keep me from balancing that. So yeah, big effort there. Well, I totally agree that there is just something that happens when you connect with another individual, especially when you're trying to build each other up. The concern I have, and this is way off the topics that we were supposed to talk about today, but I'm digging it. So what are we doing in society that everything we're putting out there is bringing us further and further apart from us connecting with our fellow humans? This is a long rant, right? But I've I've got passionate (laughs) feelings about this. I'll try to do the short version. I think a huge part of it is when you say the stuff we're putting out there. Well, we're putting it out there on platforms that reward immediate reactions. Well, what drives the most immediate reactions? Fear and anger. So the things that get me the most likes and reposts and comments and shares and the things that, that the platform I'm playing on is rewarding me for is strongly skewed to how, and it's, they're not trying to be punks. I don't think the platforms are bad actors on purpose. This is just human, right? If you get me afraid, I'm going to react very strongly. If you encourage me, I will react. But the, I, I mean, I, I have people who will tell me they love, they love my stuff that I post online. They're like, well, I mean, I don't actually click like every time, but I love reading it. But you put something up there that's about tragedy or fear or injustice. And, and so, purely strategy, we come back to our teams and we say, hey, which of our content is quote unquote performing the best? Well, gosh, it's this stuff. And so so that's one of the mechanisms that's going on is we are being aggressively rewarded for the things that are very short-term reaction that, that guess what? Fear and anger causes me to pull back, feel unsafe, hang on to my tight community. The, the us versus them enemy kind of shows up. And so, so that's part of it. The other part, ironically, is that it's more easy than ever to find your tribe. And it used to be like, listen, if, unless you lived in a giant city, most of us ran across a lot of different people that were not like us. Um, you just like, well, yeah, there you are. What are you going to do with it, right? Uh, it's like elementary school. You're just stuck in the room with all the kids and they come from all over town and that's how it works. Well, by the time you get to our states, like I've moved to the city. A lot of people just like, ah, I like the feeling of that city versus this city. And I like, I only go to websites here. I mean, even Google, like the, the neutral search engine. Yeah. When I Google a word, I get a different response than you Google the word because they looked at my past history and they know what I actually mean by that. They go, oh, well, you typically have bought these things. So we're going to skew it this way for you. And like, we're just not seeing the same information. And so if you don't deliberately try to get into a, an, an outer bubble, you get in this world of like, everybody thinks and says the same things I do. And most of those things online are angry or fear-based. And so you get in this loop and there's something about live events where you bump up against people you didn't plan for that causes you to like, oh, wait, those are humans. And they're not actually trying to destroy America. They actually trying to do good things. And maybe, maybe even I disagree with them, but but if I know them as a human, it's a whole different level of knowing. So I think COVID didn't help because we were scared for our lives and we didn't have the live unplanned interactions. We only lived online. And so I think there were some really beautiful things that came out of COVID. It forced us to learn a lot of things and grow. And my family got some marvelous times together those first few months. But this is one of the downsides I think has happened is we retreated more and more into our, our bubble of people who, who are quote unquote in our tribe or like us. 
And okay, so let's loop this back into business, right? Because I don't want this to be a society rant. What do we do about that? Well, one of the things I challenge businesses to do is go get in the field and get to know their customers. When you know somebody from a distance, like you just know facts about them. One of the things we talk about in our engine, the fuel that drives this engine is customer insight. Do you really know your customers? Well, man, I'll tell you, most of the companies we've worked with have customer data, not customer insight. We know facts about them, what they buy, when they bought it, right? Where they live, even their zip code. But do we really know the difference? Uh, and I actually play a little game with them. So I, I'll play it with you, Trace. I'm thinking of a famous man. And we'll see if you can guess the same famous man. I'm certain you know this person. Um, so I'm going to give you just the facts, right? We'll give you data and we'll see if we can get to the same spot. So it's a British dude. It is a man, right? A male. It's a British dude, English guy. Um, he lives in a castle. So pretty nice house. He has two famous grown children. Anyone who you think of that, that comes to mind that fits that bill? I'm thinking Prince Charles or now King Charles. Uh, yeah, that's right. Would have said Prince Charles not long ago. Recently King Charles. Yeah, dude, that's what everybody says. Unfortunately, I was thinking of Ozzy Osbourne. Um, so. <laughs> does <laughs> he know, live in a castle? He does. He does. Oh, Who knew? man. So, and, you know, he's a prince, right? Prince of Darkness. Uh, same thing. Right? It's okay. And I, my joke is like, that's fine because Ozzy and Charlie, they're pretty much the same guy, right? Like, I would mix them up all the time. Yes. <laughs> heck no, man. Like, I can't think of one thing. If you were trying to make like a raving fan out of these guys. I can't think of one thing Charlie would love that Ozzy wouldn't hate and vice versa, but they look the same on the surface. If all you're getting is this distant, virtual, report-driven data, you should have those numbers. I'm not saying they're bad. You got to go past the surface down into why. Who are they? What do they care about? Maybe make real relationships. And what I have found with a lot of leaders, to talk about fast scaling, this is one of the problems of growth. Well, man, in the early days, maybe 50% of the customers you personally interacted with. Like you were just doing it. You were on the field. Maybe you were entry level or maybe the company was small, right? And it, as you grow, you get promoted, you hire people under you, you, you got more and more clients. And you went from like 50% of the customers you'd see every year to 5%. And these leaders still think they're connected and know what's going on, but they're running on old data or they're running on indirect data. And one of the disciplines of great companies who want to really like stay tuned in and wow their customers and do all this is you got to get out of this, this sitting in your office bubble and you got to go physically to where the customers are and watch them interact with your stuff. I mean, even for a software company, we went, they do software for big healthcare systems and they did all the, the software. You can track the clicks they use and see exactly reports and how long, how many minutes they spend on it. And all this beautiful data. And I was like, well, when do you go to their site and watch them use it? And they're like, yeah, we, we've never done that. Let's just try a couple visits. And man, we found some interesting things. Quick one, for example. So the physicians are supposed to use this, enter a bunch of data, and then you, you can track like, hey man, Scott hasn't picked up his prescription for two months. Somebody better check on it. It helps people not fall through the cracks. It's a really cool system. But it all assumes the doctor's entering good data, right? So, so we go do this deal. And what we find is a significant percent, not majority, but a significant minority of the physicians were like having their nurse and physician's assistant enter the data on the side. Like they, and they're sitting there doing pen and paper data capture. And you're like, what, what's the deal? Like, uh, and they'd asked them, Hey, folk surveys, focus groups, right? All the user group meetings, they've done all this, 
this formal stuff away from the, the field to say, tell me the input. And the input was, well, you know, we need this extra report or can you make this faster or add this extra button for me? Like, cool, cool, cool. And they had this whole roadmap of all the stuff they're going to build and improve. And, and the thing they really needed wasn't anything anyone was asking for. They needed to move to tablet. Because see, what we found was the computers were stuck in the back corner. And this is why the physicians didn't want, they didn't want to sit there. In fact, it was the best physicians who didn't want to do this because they want a great patient experience. They want to get up and interact and put their hand on their back and look, scoot their chair close and look them in the eye. And they can't do that sitting up in the corner typing on the computer. So moving to tablet, making it a one hand thing where they can just swipe touch and they can you know, have the stethoscope and do all that other stuff while they're doing it. Nobody was asking for it. And it was the thing they needed. And you couldn't get that from a survey because you only, you only get answers to questions you ask. And you can say like, what else should we do? They don't know. One of the, the famous quotes of history for this is Henry Ford. He said, man, if I would have asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Mm-hmm. Like we, we can describe problems well, but we really can't give you all the answers in these indirect reports. And so I'm not anti-surveys. There's a way to do those well. But, but man, there's nothing that substitutes for getting out of our little private bubble and going into their world and seeing them really interact with our stuff, their space, seeing their environment, the, the relationships you build, the insights you get. Um, and, and yeah, the best, coolest software platform in the world, and I use a lot of them, they can't substitute for it. There's something humans need about rubbing up against other humans and just learning and reacting from each other. You've brought up several times the customer experience engine. Can you describe that to our listeners? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So the fuel that pours in the engine is customer insight. Do we really know our customers, right? And then it goes through this three-gear process. So imagine really big gear and two small gears. Um, so the really big gear is, is the stuff we talked about earlier. It's not what most people think I'm going to talk about. Like, wait, customer experience this is going to be parties and, and handwritten notes. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get to that. But the biggest gear in the engine is operational excellence. Like if you don't earn trust through your excellence, nothing else matters. Uh, It's McDonald's ice cream machine problem. It doesn't matter that the ice cream can taste really, really good. If I don't count on it to be up and running, I'm just not even going to try anymore. So operational excellence. There's a whole bunch of things you do to make that better from how you hire. The the single biggest factor is hiring with excellence. you, You can't get somebody who doesn't want to be in your company to work really hard. There's no amount of systems for that. So get great people. Then you want to put cool measures on it and put leaders over your important things and focus on stuff. So there's all sorts of tactical things you do. It's not, it's not motivational hype speeches, but you get operational excellence. If you've earned that trust, now you earn the right to do personalized service. This is where you make personal custom connections, small touches. This is a little gear. So I just read reread for the first time I reread it, but uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. So I don't know if you've read that one. It's one of my all-time favorites. So in that book, he talks about the flywheel. If you remember this metaphor, it's this big, heavy stone pre-combustion engine. This was the engine, right? It might take three, four hours to get one revolution and then a second and third, and eventually you have this huge momentum. Well, once that thing's going, the way it would actually work is you would get the big wheel going and then you drop these other little gears into it that run off the momentum of the big gear. That's how these little gears are. The big momentum is operational excellence. Deliver the fundamentals well and just 
the greats never stop pushing on the flywheel, right? And now I drop in little touches. So once or twice a year, you make a personal reach out and say, hey, Trace, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on in your world? And there's, there's high touch things to do from human to human. There's high tech ways to do it. Personalized messages and personalized screens and all this stuff that just says, like, yeah, that's for me. They get me. Because um, see, the question your customer is asking if they trust you is, do you see me? Do you care about me? Do I matter as a real person to you? And it, you don't have to do a lot. I find a lot of companies overcompensating for bad operations with this epic service. Man, if you've got good operations, you can just do one or two small things and be like, I see you. Man, that's awesome. What a great touch. These guys are the best. And then the next and last gear in this process is what I call memorable moments. So if you do all this and stop before memorable moments, they might love you and they're not telling anyone about you. And that's, we talked about that. That's the ultimate behavior we want is not just they like us, but they bring other people say, man, you got to, you got to check this guy out. These people are awesome, right? So how do you get them to do that? You don't cross your fingers and hope they talk. You give them a story to tell. You create a memorable moment that's like, oh, this is awesome. And man, these guys are the best. And the key to that is counterintuitive. Most people think that I'm going to make a memorable moment by talking about how awesome my company is. Well, I want to be the hero of the story, right? Uh, the metaphor I'm going to use is Star Wars. I, I love this partly because I think it works. Okay, maybe partly because I have a Jedi robe and lightsaber in the closet. Um, it's, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. <laughs> of course. Of yeah. course. Mine too. Um, I may have been a Jedi like for the 10th Halloween in a row here. So um, yeah, it's like, what else am I going to be? So, okay. So I want to be Luke Skywalker, right? I'm going to be the guy that saves the day. And I, I'm, hang, hang on, uh, young Luke, not depressed, deadbeat dad, Luke. Like what did, <laughs> what did they do to that guy? Like he was a hero who like always saw the best in people, even Vader. And now, no, no, no. okay. Star Wars rant over. They ruined that guy. I'm young Luke. I'm the hero. And I keep thinking if I could just show them how awesome a Jedi I am, they'll be like, check that guy out. He's a Jedi. They're not going to do it, man. I mean, they might even believe I'm a Jedi. They don't want to tell my story. They want to tell their story. So the key to getting them to talk about you is create a moment where they feel like the Jedi hero, where the story is about how awesome they are. They really are the kind of father they want to be or the kind of creative that they always dreamed of. I mean, this is Apple's ethos. Apple just doesn't make you feel like Apple's cool. Apple makes you feel like I'm creative and cool because I use Apple. Like it's just the way I proved to myself in the world. I'm awesome. Harley Davidson's another good example, right? Hey, pro tip, when they tattoo your logo on their body, right? They might be a raving fan. Like you got something figured out. Harley's got folks that go nuts for them. It's not because of Harley per se. It's because how they feel when they're on the bike. It's how they feel about themselves. And so, so how do we create something where they feel so awesome about themselves that they will then want to tell this story because guess what? It's a way to prove to myself and everyone else, I really am that kind of awesome. So creating these little moments that, that again, once or twice a year, little gear, not a lot of money, not a lot of time. And you just, just give them a little taste of like, I really do get to be awesome. Thanks to these guys. And the story gets to spread. So again, you put all this together and then I finally, I didn't used to have this, but I had to add one last piece to the engine. And that was a belt that wrapped around all of the, the pieces. Cause I kept running into companies where it's like, it's sort of working, but we're getting no results. Like what's going on. And it came down to being a healthy leadership team. Like if you don't, if your team, your whole team doesn't buy into this, 
it doesn't work. The idea of a healthy team is they truly all together on a shared goal and have a shared win versus like, ah, I mean, good luck with you, but man, I don't care if you win or lose, I'm going to get my stuff done. Um, that kind of isolated, separate team, I mean, it might be nice people, but they're not a true team. Um, if that doesn't work, it's because what I found is if, if you don't run the whole engine, you don't get any of the benefit. Um, you get a little bit of benefit from good operational excellence, but they're not talking about you. Sales don't grow. You're just solid. It, you got to put all the pieces in place without that trust. They don't want to see your party. Right. But if you just have fundamentals and you don't give them a story to tell, they're not going to tell anybody. When you put it all together though, there's some synergy that happens. And so, so the leadership team kind of wraps around it all and keeps us going. And the other thing I like about it is, is it's the continual loop. It's not a one-time event. You don't do your one-time memorable event or you don't work on operations the once, check the box and then go back to normal. Like you're just continually upgrading a little better, a little better, a little better. And that's the team's job is just keep running through another loop and say, how do we do it this time? How do we do it this time? How do we do it this time? Can we get 5% better this year? And that, that 5% of improvement, that stacks, man. Uh, over time, you, you get epic. I got to joke on myself a little bit. And I'll finish up with this. So I actually knew Chick-fil-A for a long, long time. I actually went to high school with uh, some of the folks in the family that own Chick-fil-A. I'm the current CEO is a high school buddy of mine. And so I've known them for 25, 30 years, like great folks, right? They're, they're just really, really good people. Um, having said that, man, back then, a bunch of my high school buddies went college and Chick-fil-A right away. And I was like, yeah, you know, good luck with your little mall company. I, I hope you guys make it. Uh, yeah, I think, I think they're going to make it. Uh, they're doing, they're doing pretty well. Uh, so why did I blow them off? Partly I was a business idiot, right? I had at 18, I had no idea how to evaluate what was a good business and what wasn't. But in my defense, part of why I blew them off is because Chick-fil-A 25 years ago, was not the Chick-fil-A we all know and love today. I mean, it was Chick-fil-A and there was some beautiful, the, the sandwich was always a sandwich. That's good chicken. However, they didn't, they just starting to experiment with drive-thrus. They, they mostly were a mall company. They had a few outstanding, you know, freestanding restaurants that, so they're famous for their drive-thru these days when they didn't have one. The cow campaign, the eat more chicken hadn't been invented. The waffle fries had just, like, that was a brand new thing. Um, breakfast products were brand, I mean, half the menu didn't exist. On and on and on. The things that they're famous for today didn't exist 25 years ago. But what they did have was this engine of continuous improvement, 5% better, 5% better, 5% better. That I now, with my, my, my painfully acquired wisdom, is like that's more valuable than any one activity they did is they just keep playing with new things, new things, new things. And a company that can get that, any organization that can get this continuous loop of improvement Man, those exponential engines, they look slow. 25 years ago, they weren't, they weren't looking that big. But you just keep that up long enough, it gets huge, man. I mean, your, your problem becomes how do we manage our growth, not how do we grow? A mutual friend of ours, Cliff Robinson, yes, he was talking Cliff. to us uh, at one of our Mastermind Live events. And one of the questions, it was all about Chick-fil-A. It was all about customer service. It was fantastic. And, uh, and he took... A little over an hour's worth of our questions, and they were they were all about customer service. That's awesome. One of the questions that came up was, "How did they get the drive-through just so perfect during COVID, when everybody else was struggling?" Yeah, and he shared, "Oh, we didn't start working on that when COVID happened. We've been working on that for years. Now maybe we rolled it out a little bit quicker, but yeah. we knew what we were going to do." 
but they redefined drive-through during the pandemic. Yes. And I'll tell you, 12 years ago, no, 15 years ago, I was part of a project team to help them think about what is, we called it the drive-through play. And we used the football analogy, like how do we manage this? And we looked at lean manufacturing Kanban techniques in a drive-through. Like what do you, what are you talking about? And there was no pandemic on the horizon. We just said, you know, a big part of our business is the drive-through. What does it look like to just improve it? And there was no one day where the drive-through went from bad to this currently awesome outdoor delivery you know, interpersonal model. We literally like, well, let's try this one tweak. Well, let's try this one tweak. We tried an outdoor cash, like we put some money into this, made these little like booths outside with cash and a machine and all this pre-iPad stuff. So if you look in your drive-thru, you'll probably pass a little black box. If you were in one of the early ones, you'll you'll know it was one of the early test sites because it'll be like this, almost like a black podium that's now like locked up and closed and has nothing inside of it. But it was like a safe and all this stuff because they're thinking, well, I guess we have to take what's inside and put it outside. And I mean, all sorts of stuff that, that they're like, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. Well, let's try this. It used to be just one person. Now there's like three people outside. I mean, so again, inch by inch by inch, let's just run the experiment. Let's just see what it looks like. And then COVID hits. And it, it's like, dude, a lot of things like this, a lot of growth like this is, we call it an overnight success. It's been 10 years in the making, and then it finally all comes together. And the last year is all the epic results. And everyone's like, oh, how do I copy those? Start your engine, man. Yeah, if you just start building now, you never know when your next opportunity will come, and you'll be the guy who's been working on it and getting ready. So let me ask you a question I think a lot of people have about the engine metaphor. Right now, we are working at a time where we just can't find people to work and customer service is suffering and people understand to a point, but you can't go anywhere today. I mean, if we went to McDonald's today, we would expect bad customer service because they have maybe the third of the people that they need to run that restaurant. So how do we, how do we bypass that? How do we repair the engine while we're dealing with that? Man, you're talking about what I think is the single biggest thing that is upstream and drives most of the downstream stuff. I mean, I honestly don't have an easy answer. I think I have a, a useful answer. But part of the answer is you have to put more time and effort into hiring than ever. Um, and it used to be that you could get away with not putting a ton of time and strategy and thought into how you hire and how you, where you find your people and because there were good people around and you'd find them. The fact that it's harder means we need to work harder. Um, now, what do I mean by that? Some of that is, is thought and strategy. So for example, we help people think about hiring for three C's, character, chemistry, and competence. Most people are only looking at competence in their hiring process. But we want to say, no, no, character, chemistry, competence, character, what kind of person are they? And I don't just mean generically nice, integrity. We all want somebody with integrity. Nobody's like, I love liars, right? Like, of course we want integrity. I mean, like, what are the unique character qualities for your organization? Man, we're a passion for details, or we're really like boundary pushers, or we're super people oriented. What are the character qualities that make you fit your culture, right? Then chemistry. Do we like this person? What are their people skills like? Do we enjoy talking and hanging out and work? We're going to spend a lot of our lives together with these people. If we don't enjoy each other, at least on a basic level, it has real operational implications. Listen, if I'm about to make an idiot mistake, right? And, And I've been a jerk to you or we just don't click and it's weird. Dude, 
sometimes the temptation is like, yeah, Scott's about to hit the wall. Let's get some popcorn and watch. This is going to be awesome, right? Like, sucker, burn, you moron. We saw this come. Versus if we're best buddies and you see me about to do something that's going to cost me a lot, you'll be like, dude, you you really need to rethink this. And if I'm your friend, I will listen at a whole other level. Like, I mean, if Trace thinks so, maybe I should really think about this. So chemistry matters. And then yes, competence, all the stuff we know, job spill and experience and resume and all that stuff. And here's, here's the tragedy. When you can't, I would obviously love to have perfect in all three, but when you can't get that, when you're in current markets and you're like, ah, the only one that I would say, okay, you get to fudge on this one. Like it's not perfect, but it's close enough. The only one I would fudge on is competence. And by that, I mean, if they don't have enough job experience or they don't have the technical skill, or they've never done it before, you know what? It might take three to six months, but we can train them on that. Now they have to have enough of the, the raw competence, like, hey, the, the, the capability, physical, intellectual, whatever it is that, okay, they, they can learn it, but they've never done it. Like I can, that's where I can fudge. And most people's selection process only looks at competence, which is the, only, which is the least important of the three. And, and it's this, do they care about the job? I mean, you trying to make somebody care is intense and exhausting and uncertain. Find people who already care and give them technical skills. And that is, that's the way we've been helping a lot of our clients say, okay, you can't find your perfects. So find young bucks who are hungry, but don't have any skills or find people who are in related spaces and they never really played in your skill or never at your level, like, be good at developing your team. And there's whole tools and ways to do that. We help people put all those in place. And then, then you can take raw talent and shape it. And that's far more valuable. The mistake to take though, the, the thing I'd actually hate is get somebody who's got a lot of job experience, but they've kind of become jaded and bitter and they don't care anymore. But I mean, they can get it done and you slot them in the role and you just, they start depressing the performance of everybody around them. So the last comment I'll say is there's more thought that goes into this. I think it's more time. I don't know how to do this in, in one interview. I mean, we've been trying for years to figure out how do we, and there's ways to get lots done in a single interview, have multiple people at once interview them. And so like four of us on one person and lots of the ways to, but I st I've never seen it least three interviews, at least for entry level positions, my job. So I had a really unique job doing high end strategy for the whole company. Uh, it was five months and 17 interviews before they offered me the job. Uh, now, I, that's not the goal, right? The goal is to be a lot faster and more efficient, but I was going to work across the company. I interviewed multiple VPs and entry levels and teams. And I hear this, they'll say, man, Scott, okay, that's cool and all, but I don't have time to do this. And Trace, like, I, I've got hard news for everybody. You don't really have a choice. You're going to put in the time. You're either going to put in the time to hire with excellence, or you're going to put in the time managing misfit employees, but you're going to put in time. You just get to pick which side of the equation you put it in on. That's a brutal fact. I don't like it, but I've hit that wall enough times. Like I'm going to acknowledge there's a brick wall right there. If I'm sloppy with my hiring, everything else gets harder. Scott, if somebody just tuned in right now and you could only get one message out to them, what do you want that message to be? Man, growth and, and amazing customer experiences, they're not magic. It's not luck. You don't happen to invent a brilliant product and somehow it works. You don't stumble across an amazing person and that will happen. Luck will come to us good and bad and, and maximize when that happens. But that is not how the great brands have done it. 
That is not how the great teams, great leaders, great lives have turned out. It is a long, steady system of continuous improvement. You can build an engine to get a little better and a little better and the hype and you'll be motivated some days and not the other days and your engine will just keep rolling and you don't have to kill yourself and you don't have to grind like nuts. Yes, you're going to have to show up and do some work. But honestly, if you get your engine going, you can settle and just say, hey, we just keep moving. And what do you know? You can have overnight success. You can be one of the legendary brands just by putting the engine together and staying with it long enough. It's not magic. It's a system. There are a set of things that this stacks on this, stacks on this, and their minds are blown. And you might even be in work less hours now than when you were grinding on just hoping it happened to you without a plan. So you can be intentional. You can be systematic. You really can be great. I, no, none of the greats started that way. I mean, even the, the brands we all love now, there was a time when they weren't and they just steadily figured it out. You can too. This is a lot of fun, and I feel like there's probably three hours more that we can spend together, but I, yes. I, I, know, I know you've got something you've got to get to. So let me move to the lightning round questions if you're ready for those. Let's do it, man. All right. So, uh, so you now have the ability to talk to your former self on your first day as a consultant. What advice would you give yourself? Man, I would say... Pick one thing and really start building a reputation around that one thing. When I first launched, honestly, a large part fear-based, I, I had done a wide variety of things, had a lot of things I could talk about from lean manufacturing to HR to storytelling for marketing to leadership development. And I, I started telling everybody I could do everything. If you asked me what I could speak on, I literally, I think I still, I should probably find that document. I think I listed like 19 different talks that I could give from innovation to uh, lean healthcare. I'm like, man, what I have learned is people, if you're trying to build a reputation, build trust, build a brand, people need to know the main thing you are good at. And like, so this is the metaphor one of my mentors gave me is still like, it's beautiful. He said, it's like trying to get a brand build and reputation build is about being like an icebreaker ship in the Northern shipping lanes. And you got to break through. This is the beautiful phrase. You have to break through the icy indifference of the world and get them to pay attention to you. So how do you do that? You narrow your presence down to one key point as a narrow tipped front boat. And the mistake I make is I was loading everything to the front of the boat. I had this really flat fronted boat that like doesn't plow through ice very well because like all 19 things he's great at. And I might've been good at all 19, but when I picked this one, like the customer experience engine, that's the one I ended up picking. Took me two years to do it. And now like, that's my jam. And oh, by the way, it's nice to have a lot of things on the back of the boat. Now that I'm in and we're doing stuff, we can talk about this other stuff. And there's lots of long-term side projects we can do, but, but man, pick one. And I had the hardest time being like, but I can do that. I know which one are you going to pick? And so it took me two years to finally have the guts. I mean, it's a little bit scary to say, I'm going to stop telling them. I'm just going to say the talk you want me to give is this. Now, if you don't like that one, let's talk about other things, but just consider this one first. Um, and that's when the company really started taking off and we had clarity and my team knew what to do and our clients growth started taking off. I tried to do everything and nobody knew what to kind of hook their handle on. So yeah, narrow my focus. Pick one thing, build around that one thing. Such a great metaphor. <laughs> yes, it's so good. That, that guy's given me a dozen great metaphors. 
Well, I'm going to change this next question a little bit because I know you read a lot. Now, I try yes. to read 50 books a year. Nice. That's about a book a week. But yeah. I know you try to read over 200 books a year. How do you do that? Okay, so there's a couple of things. By far, the single biggest factor is this happened 10 or 12 years ago, but I read an article. I was listening to podcasts and I had some books on CD. And I read an article that said, we can listen faster than we can speak. It's just a human brain thing. And I was like, huh. And they're like, so look at your podcast player and you have an increased playback speed button. And I was like, huh. So I wonder how fast I can get. Well, let me tell you, like I, when I first started seven minutes at one time speed, my brain would zone out. I try to do it on the commute to work. 10 minutes in, I'm like, I have no idea what the guy's saying. I'm, I'm like lost, right? I've stopped listening to her a long time ago. Well, I, eventually I got used to being on a whole commute. And then I read this article and I was like, oh, let's go to 1.25 speed. And honestly, at first I couldn't keep up, but then I was like, I'm going to just work at it. And then I would slow it down. And eventually I made the whole commute at 1.25 speed. And then I pushed it and pushed it. And I just have kept playing with that. And so honestly... I listen at 3.5 times speed now. Oh, come on. It's true. It's true. It's like I'm pulling up my phone right now, and I'm going to show you the book I'm in the middle of listening to, and you can uh, hear what it sounds like. Here we go. And so, Really? You're getting stuff out of that? That's how my brain processes that now. That's um, amazing. So, Okay, so now add that. So that alone, huge. And listen, if you can't get to three five quickly, that it took me seven years to get the three times speed. So like but most people could probably go one, two, five, maybe one point five right away and add fifty percent to your reading. Done. Now, this is the other magic of audiobooks. I do it during my commute. I happen to travel for work. So I'm sitting in the airport line. I got nothing else to do. I'm playing an audiobook. There are some chores that I absolutely hate. They're mindlessly and above all else, boredom kills me. So like the lawn, the laundry, right? Did the dishes like, oh, for the love. Audiobook saves my life, man. Um, now, the book I just played for you is a fiction book. I'm about 50-50 fiction, nonfiction, partly for fun. Partly because I think really good fiction, I do like sci-fi and fantasy and this, that's not all, but mostly. And I think that pushes my creativity and there's, there's emotional intelligence gets developed through fiction, I think. So, so anyway, sometimes it's like, I'm just going to load up a novel, uh, go through an adventure while I got to do the dadgum dishes. So between filling in dead time with audiobooks and cranking up the speed, that's probably 75% of my books read right there. Oh, then yeah, occasionally I got a hard copy book somebody gives me and I'll flip through it at nighttime or I got books on Kindle app and I'll, I'll flip through some of those. But dude, audiobooks, it's been a life-changing piece. So I don't think everyone should read as much as I do unless you have a job that contents your job. And that's a big part of me is I'm constantly coming up with cool new ideas for my clients. And if you don't travel like I do and have all these, these four-hour zones where I'm doing nothing else, then that's how I get to reading so much. I actually don't set a goal to say, I got to get through 200. I just listen to audiobooks and read a little bit in the evenings uh, at bedtime. It's kind of a good way to, to chill my brain out. And what do you know? I happened to get to 200. Used to be 100, and then I just kept increasing my audio speed. And then, what well, do you know? It's 200 plus something. So yeah, man, um, the goal is just give me a steady flow of good content. And the happenstance outcome is it's a lot of books. I'm just so impressed. 3.5 speed. I've gotten up to two, but I can't do that with all authors. 
Well, well, yeah, okay. Now there are a few that I slow down for. Like they got an accent or it's really technical and I got to back off a little bit, but more and more at three, five speed these days. Cause I was at three for a while. They didn't have more than three. And there was only, I think last year they upped it to 3.5. So I had to retrain my brain to be comfortable at 3.5 again. So yeah, I would just say, just nudge it to 2.1 and sit there for six months. And then you can go to 2.2, but you might be surprised. Maybe you don't go all the way to 3.5. Maybe you don't like it, but you just might be surprised at what you're actually capable of. Most of us are way underestimating our actual capability. Well, I want to take the challenge. 1.5 is my preferred speed. And then if the author has a lot of pauses, I, I've gotten up to two, but I am not consistently at two. But I'm going to take the challenge. Yeah, buddy. Hey, that's an extra 25% reading every year. You go 50 to what, like 67 or something like that. Without... Now, what's your retention like on that when you're listening at 3.5? So pretty good. Um, now, I'll be transparent. I have a really good memory for ideas. I have a terrible memory for physical stuff. Where's my car? Where did I put my shoes? All the time. Like I, I have wandered the Atlanta airport parking lot for 45 minutes. Like I don't remember where I parked. I got a totally wrong parking lot at times. But my brain does remember ideas. Now, part of that is because I spend so much of my time thinking. So ironic, the more you read, actually, the easier it is to remember because you get these mental models become like frames to hang your ideas on. And so if you drop a new book on leadership or customer strategy or insights, tech, man, I already have like seven other, oh, that's kind of like this. And that relates to this. And it's easier for me, not harder. So that's part of it. Part of it is I, I'm on Goodreads. 90% because of me. I have a few people who are like, I love following you. Like I make myself write a review of every book I read and it forces me to have some sort of capture mechanism. I'm done. Remember what the big things are. Pop them out. If, if I looked at it, if it was audio, I don't have notes. But if it's Kindle, I'll go back and look through the notes I highlighted and write a little review. I've got four questions I always make myself answer. And so that becomes another processing tool. And then, man, sometimes for the very, very good books that are deep or complex or profound, I will then go buy a hard copy because I want to flip through it slowly or reference it again, or there's really cool diagrams. And so, so it's like, I know I'm going to need more retention than I can get out of audio from this one. And we'll go back. So I've got a few systems to keep it going. I would say it's good. I'm always kind of fiddling with it, but yeah. The point is not to read books. The point is to have more better ideas that you actually implement. And so if I read 10 more books at the cost of, I don't remember any of that stuff. I just was talking to a buddy of mine about this. I, so I got my own podcast and we literally yesterday recorded an episode where we were talking about this exact process. How do you read your book? Because he reads a lot too. He's kind of like you. And we swapped systems and he goes, man, I do not have an idea instinct, right? Like I have to work harder than you do at that. And so he was talking through this system where he even does like a once a month review, all the things he read last month and make himself revisit it. And once a year review the whole year. And he's got all these review systems to try to keep the big ideas in his head. But yeah, I, I can get away with being a little sloppier than probably most can because that's my, and it's caused problems. The, the lack of physical memory has uh, caused life disruption more than a few times. Um, <laughs> But yes, it does mean that, man, ideas are my jam. Well, you did mention the podcast, so tell us about that. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's called Upgrade Engines with Scott Wozniak. And it's like these systems of upgrading. So not just company, but also us as individuals. What does that look like? So yeah, we'll talk about customer experience stuff. But I also talk about things like self-awareness and how to learn how to learn. I mean, this whole con that's why we talked about how do you read so much? Well, learning how to learn. If you, if you get good at learning, then guess what? All the other stuff gets easier. And so there's a handful of these fundamental systems that I think drive all the, the outcomes. They're kind of the behind the scenes engine. And so, so that's my jam. You can find, you can find anything about me and my website and all that at scottwozniak.com. That's uh, S-C-O-T-T-W-O-Z-N-I-A-K.com. We'll be sure to put that on the show notes sure, page. Sure. So if anybody's driving, they can get there. So question number three, when somebody makes a movie about your life, who do you want playing you? Ooh. Okay. So I'll let's, let's be honest, right? Who do I want playing me versus who would most accurately be the guy to play me? Like, I mean, dude, Matt Damon would be really cool to have play me. Bruce Willis. I mean, these guys are studs, right? I don't know if that's the most accurate. Um, yeah, I'll go. If I get to pick my favorite, let's go Matt Damon. I think that, hey, Mark Wahlberg, right? These are super cool dudes that, that I go. think, you know, if they they shave their heads and look look like a little bit like me, we might be able to squint and be like, I, mean, I, I guess that's kind of looks like Scott's better looking older brother. Um, yeah, that. how about that? I'd go with those two guys. There you go. Great answer. Last question. If you could talk with anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Gosh, man, there's a long list. of. I, so one of the categories of books I read a lot of is biographies. It's a little hack for reading that a lot of people ought to lean into because it feels like you're reading a novel, the good ones. It's exciting. Um, but dude, there's a ton of really interesting insights on how they handled things. So gosh, two people come to mind. Um, Alexander the Great. He did some bananas cool things. And all the reports we have from him are secondhand, you know, two generations off, written by people who weren't in his inner circle. And so there's all these rumor mills about why and how. And I read a biography on him that like debunked the whole idea that he was kind of a wild, drunk, crazy guy. It's like, actually, think about everyone who said that was actually his enemies at home. So what did the people who love him? None of them said that about him. So it's really interesting. So Alexander the Great, I'd love to get through that. But on a totally alternate example, a William Wilberforce. Um, he's a little known figure historically, but he had huge impact on the world. He's the first guy ever to successfully lead a movement and have slavery be ended by a people in power. Uh, the English uh, Empire canceled slavery while they were still on top of the world. Nobody in the history of the, there's been slavery since there's been humans. It's a terrible tragedy, an indictment of our species. And the only, the first time ever a group in power canceled their own slavery practices was the England. And Wilberforce made it his life mission to turn that around. It took him like 60 plus years to do this. And there's some really good books. One of the books is Amazing Grace, um, The Life of William Wilberforce by Eric Metaxas. And the reason Amazing Grace is because one of the guys in his circle ended up being the guy who wrote the famous Christian song, Amazing Grace. And Wilberforce himself started as a kind of a wild playboy who kind of had his life radically turned around and said, I need a great cause and picked this as his great purpose of his life. The guy changed the world. And so how do you actually change something from the inside like that is fascinating to me as somebody who's trying to figure out how to make lasting change. Um, so there you go. Two totally different dudes. Alexander the Great and William Wilberforce would love to talk to those guys. 
Great answers. Well, I want to add a bonus question just for you. So I just learned this fact the other day. So if you were at a Kentucky Fried Chicken and you were to bring up to the counter an empty bucket and ask for a chicken refill, they will do it. No. Just no. learned it. I verified it. I didn't actually do it. But I saw it on the internet. It's got to be true, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Let's go with it. That's So so here's my question. You are in the Chick-fil-A no. So what are some secrets around Chick-fil-A? Is there a secret menu? Is there a code word you can say and get a free chicken sandwich? What what do you know that we now can know? So I... The only way I know that you can get a free chicken sandwich on the regular is they have a little algorithm and every so often the receipt prints out. uh, If you ever get a super long receipt from them, the second half that makes it super long is a code in an online site where you can go on, answer like seven to 10 questions and they give you a little code and you write it down and it's a free chicken sandwich. So check your receipts. You may have been throwing away free chicken sandwiches. That's the first thing. That's the only way I know how to get free. Gosh. And then yes, there's sort of a secret menu because- Um, What happens is the staff are constantly mix and matching products that aren't typically together and doing it. Like quick example, they have bacon for their breakfast products. Well, it sits around all day. You know, you can add bacon to any sandwich you want. Add bacon to your salad. And let's just be real. You can add bacon to everything. I have yet to come across the food product that isn't improved with bacon added from salads to donuts to sandwiches, like bacon makes the world better, right? So just ask for, hey, can I add bacon to that? And they're like, yeah, you can add cheese to that. That's a Cheese goes on almost everything. So there's easy ads, but man, there's some creative stuff. So I, I'll give you an example, one that people now all know about. If you've ever had the frosted lemonade, it's this uh, lemon flavored milkshake kind of ice cream drink they have. That is the lemonade poured into the ice cream with a little bit of the milkshake base. That's the employees would just make that on their break as part of their, their snack. And it was like, hey, that's dadgum pretty good. So so like, there's a ton of mix and match. I want to add this. I don't want that. I want a hot version of this, fried version of that, grilled version of this. Let me throw one out there that, that this, this is dangerous, right? Like do this responsibly. Don't, don't eat and drive this. But their mac and cheese, it's very good. Their mac and cheese with bacon. I'm just saying get the bacon, drop it on the mac and cheese, might double that bacon. It's dangerous, right? Like you don't, don't do that on the daily. That will wreck you. But uh, as a treat, that's the kind of stuff that you can do at Chick-fil-A. We got to end on that because that's just the best piece of advice we've heard so far. That's right. How do you top that, right? Like once we've gone bacon, you're done. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Scott, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all this information with the Scaling Up H2O audience. And uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have you back. So be on the lookout for our call. This has been super fun, man. Thanks for hanging. Scott, once again, thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I have to tell you, that was a fun interview. Scott and I met through my mentor, as you heard, Tim Fulton. Tim Fulton's one of those guys that I just want to know 10% of what he's forgotten about business, and I would be happy with that. Well, he, of course, introduced us and... If you are not asking people you know who you should know, 
what an opportunity you are missing out on. Because I would have never met Scott had it not been for a conversation that I had with Tim Fulton. And I asked him that very question. Hey, who is it you think I need to meet? And Tim always has a huge list for me. It's always a great time when I meet with Tim. And I urge all of you to meet with some sort of coach because I tell you, when you've got somebody that is pouring into you and is holding you accountable and is allowing you to understand the things that you do not know, and more importantly, shed light on the things you don't know you don't know, that is where you really pick up speed and you start to develop every aspect of your life. So it seems like all roads lead back to Tim Fulton. I'm just such a fan of his. And of course, we've had him on the show several times. In fact, Tim and I are working on a project together that I can't wait to tell you about, but it's not quite ready yet. So you'll have to wait a little bit for that. And speaking of roads leading back to places, it seems like all roads lead back to Chick-fil-A. Scott was a Chick-fil-A executive, and for you fans of Chick-fil-A out there, hopefully you learned a few things that you didn't know about Chick-fil-A with that interview. And I always use Chick-fil-A when I coach other people, specifically leadership teams, and I help them come up with their core values. Now, I say I help them come up with their core values. They're doing all the heavy lifting there. I'm just providing a framework so they can determine what their core values are. And I'll also say every company knows what their core values are. They just might not have defined them yet. And when you can define them and when you talk about them on a regular basis, that's when the magic starts to happen. And if you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A, you can see that there is a culture there. So Chick-fil-A is always the company that I use as an example two core values. And I did that one day and I had one lady get really mad with me and they said they don't like Chick-fil-A, they don't like what they stand for, they had all this big grief with Chick-fil-A. And to be honest, that was right around the time that Dan Cathy had said something about the LGBTQ community. And a couple of things I want to address with that. One is that I know lots of people within the Chick-fil-A community, and I think that was taken out of context, one. And also, Chick-fil-A learned a lot from that because even if those views were Dan Cathy's, they were not Chick-fil-A's. So here's the lesson from that. We represent the company we work for. And are we representing that to their core values? And he will tell you, according to all the people that I know in Chick-fil-A, that he did not represent the company well. He had his personal hat on or he was misquoted, whatever it was. The things that he said, he didn't say in the light of the company. So that's what I want to focus on with this whole introduction to this is how are you representing your company? Company. And what I told this young lady was, even if she did not like the example that I was 
giving, she understood that there was a culture there. And even if you don't like the culture to whatever company it is, if a company decides that it is going to have a particular culture and they stick to it and that's what they train to and that's what everybody lives by, that's what they hire, fire, reward, and recognize to, that's pretty impressive. And if you as a consumer don't like what they particularly stand for, and I say they as any generic company, you just don't go there. So anyway, that happened several years ago, and I think there's this stigma around Chick-fil-A that they stand for things that are is not true, and I know so many people within the Chick-fil-A organization, and they have spoken out about that, but I don't think it is as sexy for somebody to explain a comment than it was just to get the sound bite of that original comment. So I say all that because people ask me this all the time. Hey, Trace, you're a big Chick-fil-A fan. Why? Because of this. And I think what I just shared with you, and because we talked Chick-fil-A, I just wanted to share that with the Scaling Up Nation. But with anything... I encourage you, don't ever just take a soundbite. Don't ever just take for granted what somebody is telling you. And I'm not saying don't trust the media, but I am saying verify things, especially if you are going to have a strong feeling, a strong opinion on it, because is it the right information? Are you truly crediting the people with what they did or did not do? So I urge you to research everything before you form an opinion. And I am sure that you have had a disagreement with somebody and they have their version and you have your version. And once everything settled down and you were able to talk through, you found that not only what you thought was correct, but what they were thinking was correct. And it wasn't until you had the conversation, you were able to realize that. Well, with all that being said, I am going to invite you to just think a little bit more, give a little bit of grace the next time that you have either an argument or you feel very strongly about what's being reported to you, because there's always more to the story. There's always more why that isn't being reported or you don't know about. And trying to understand what that is, I think, is the success for us being kind with each other. And of course, that's another allusion back to Kathleen Edelman's book, I Said This, You Heard That. And again, you can hear her on episode 281. Well, something Scott and I also talked about during this interview was Audible. And Audible has become the only way that I read. Well, Trace, that isn't reading if you're listening. Well, your brain does not care. And I used to have a stigma about that. I'm not really reading books. I'm listening to books. But let's face it. We are busy driving from account to account. So what I've learned is Audible allows me to read while I am driving. And folks, I am so productive in my car. I spend so much more time in the office now and I'm not able to multitask, drive and listen like I used to. So I really take advantage of when I'm driving. That is my learning capsule. 
And if I'm not listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, I'm listening to an Audible book. And I was really intrigued with what Scott challenged me to do. He said he listens to all of his books at three plus speed. Wow, that is super quick. And as you learned on this episode, I would by default listen at a 1.5 speed. And I never really thought about going any faster. And when Scott challenged me, and by the way, I challenged Scott that he could not have any retention at a three plus speed. And let me tell you, he has proved that he does have that uh, retention. So I started I started inching up, and here, here's the key. You can't go from a 1.0 speed all the way up to a 3.0 speed, but what you can do is you can jump from a 1.0 speed to a 1.1, or depending on the author, maybe you can go all the way up to a 1.5. When you get used to that, your brain's not really going to tell the difference from a 1.5 to a 1.6. Once you get used to that, it's not going to tell the difference between a 1.6 to a 1.7. So I took that challenge, and depending on the author, I am listening at a 2.5 speed. Folks, that means I am devouring content, and I try to, I try to think about what I'm learning. And one of the problems I have, especially when it's going so fast, is I'll kind of get lost in a thought. I'm like, oh, that's a great point. I wonder if I do this. I wonder if I do that. And then there'll be six chapters that go by. I'm exaggerating. But a lot of the author's speaking will go by. What I've learned is to pause that when that happens and then get back to that. And I tell you, my retention has been pretty good. So that is what I'm going to try to do this year is listen to books faster. And with the Rising Tide Mastermind, I always give book assignments that are on Audible. That's one of the rules because I know how busy we are. So I'm challenging all the Mastermind members to do that as well. You can play along with that challenge. And at the end of the year, I'll give you a report back and we'll see how I do. I did 62 books last year, so we'll see what I do this year. And I get a lot of information from reading. It's one of the ways that I figure out what I don't know I don't know. So I hope that motivates you to maybe read more and to maybe use Audible. And if you don't have Audible, we have an affiliate link set up. You can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible. That will give you a free month and a free book to try it out. And I think you will love it. Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible. And for those of you that don't know about affiliate links, affiliate links are where the product manufacturer, the people that are responsible for it, say, if you can get people to come to our site and try something out or buy something, we are going to give you a commission. But here's the deal. It doesn't cost you anything extra. So if you pay $5 for something, you're still going to pay $5 for that. It just allows a commission of that $5 to come to us. And that allows us to pay the great staff that we have here at Scaling Up H2O. Folks, I am so glad that you are fans of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I cannot wait to bring next week's brand new episode to you. So until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and have a great week, folks. Twenty twenty three is a great year to get your certified water technologist designation. 
To help you prepare for the exam, visit scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep and check out our new CWT practice exam course. The CWT practice exam course is filled with over 130 videos taught by yours truly to help all water treaters gain the confidence they need to take the CWT exam. Get your CWT in 2023 and visit scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep.